Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the I Hear Design podcast. I'm your host, Robert Nieminen, and as always, thank you for joining us. If you've been tuning in regularly, uh, you know we're in the middle of series on wellness and how it impacts design. And if you missed last week's episode on biophilia, I encourage you to go back and give it a listen. Um, my guest, Holly Henderson of H2 Eco Design, had some really great insights, I thought, on the topic and shared some valuable resources, including a, a fun quiz you can take online to test your knowledge of biophilic design. Uh, so if you want to dig a little bit deeper into wellness and biophilia, go back and check it out when you get a chance. You know, we we hear so much these days about uh, things like the well-building standard and fit well, as well as various guidelines and uh, to, and lists and mater- you know for materials that impact human health. Um, all those acronyms and lists out there on the market that can be a little bit daunting to stay on top of. So for today's broadcast, I wanted to continue the conversation on wellness by exploring some of the components of healthy buildings, uh, including what goes into them and how designers can better understand and utilize some of these tools that are out on the market. So to bring some clarity to the conversation, I've invited uh, Kathleen Hetrick and Heidi Crichton with Burrow Happold in Los Angeles to join us. So, ladies, thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Well, so for our listeners out there, I was thinking that we could start the conversation off by, you know, looking at the big picture. So, like, why do you why do you guys think there's such a huge interest in designing for wellness right now? Kind of what's what's behind this trend from what you guys see? Yeah, great great question to kick us off. So just give a little bit of, of history and context here. And, you know, since the invention of electricity, our buildings were becoming very efficient, but not in great ways, right? We were designing with really large, deep floor plates. We were depending much more on mechanical and lighting systems, and those were replacing natural ventilation and daylighting. And we were really focusing on the wrong things. We were looking at first mm-hmm. costs at the building's active systems and how many people we could squeeze in in, in this very efficient way. And without really understanding the impacts that that would have on the occupants. And our buildings were, were literally making us sick, right? You've probably heard of sick building syndrome. Mm-hmm. So now there's much more of a push uh, and a trend towards narrower floor plates and connecting people to the outdoors and, and using passive strategies like operable windows and great access to daylight and views. And, and also, too, people are, are unknowingly good at making bad decisions for themselves, so we really can focus on utilizing design to encourage better decision-making mm-hmm. for the occupants. And, and then, as you know, the, the biggest asset for, for most organizations and agencies is their talent and their people. Um, right. And the World Green Building Council put out a report, and it showed that typical building operating costs are 1% for energy, 9% for the rental costs, and then a staggering 90% of operating costs goes to staff salaries and benefits. Wow. So what might appear to really be kind of a modest improvement in employee health or productivity can have a huge financial implication for employers, and one that's, that's much larger than an, an other financial savings associated with an efficiently designed or operated building. And sure. I think another really important thing that we can do is really start to bring human resources into these design conversations. Um, the the average participation in, in wellness offerings from human resources is only about 15 percent. Um, so with the design and construction of a of a healthy workplace, we're creating 100 percent participation for the occupants because we're we're creating spaces that are passively delivering um, preventative health solutions. 
Um, so mm-hmm. it would be, I think, really beneficial to really engage resources to help in- implement health and wellness strategies in our projects. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point. Kathleen, did you want to weigh in on that one as well on that topic as far as, you know, what's kind of driving all the interest in wellness? Yeah, I, Heidi really nailed it. And I think when we're thinking about health and wellness in the built environment, it is creating that connection to nature and seeing that the world around us, you know, has become so much more complex. We have to make so many decisions every day. And we spend so much time in buildings. We can get the basics right. It really makes a difference. And a lot of the times, things that affect health and wellness are also great for the bottom line and for our planet, right? Right. Definitely. What, what do you guys see as the impact that interiors can have on human health? And, and you know, how do you measure some of those impacts? Sure. So, um, so for the EPA, the average American spends 93% of their time indoors, which is just so shocking to hear, but true. Um, mm-hmm. And indoor levels of pollutants can be two to six times higher than outdoor levels. Um, and there's lots of sources for those pollutants. It can be um, combustion happening in the building, Mm-hmm. Um, that's used, you know fossil fuel use in the building, the building materials themselves and the furnishings to off gas. You know um, your your the products that you're using to clean uh, can have a big impact. Uh, the central heating and cooling systems they might have appropriate filtration, and then there's also outdoor air pollution that can impact the indoor quality. So we really need to get outside more, but most importantly, we really need to make sure our indoor environments are really healthy places for the occupants. And, and we're complex, right? There's 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 so many aspects to consider, and we're starting to understand how we what makes us tick and how our brains work and our circadian rhythms and whatnot. So there's a long laundry list. But there's air quality, there's thermal comfort, there's lighting and daylighting, there's acoustics, there's there's active design. There's just so many things to consider. Mm-hmm. And there's also a lot of really compelling research that's out there now that designers can use to make the case for human-centric design. And you know the impacts on our on our sleep and on our cognitive function and even on our life expectancy is is tremendous. So um, yeah. as designers, we really have an incredible opportunity and a lot of responsibility, I think, in in this respect. And one example of some some more recent research, Harvard in 2016, I think it was, they were looking at ventilation rates. And when the ventilation rates were doubled of the standard um, code compliance rates. The cognitive function of the participants, it was improved by over 100% in many of the areas that they're looking at. So just some really really astounding research that's happening out there. We really see post-occupancy evaluation as a key tool for that. Um, And I'll give a couple quick examples. So that we had an early lead platinum project that we worked on that had a very early and significant focus on health and well-being. It's the Genzyme headquarters in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, and there were some great outcomes from that project with the study. So there was um, post-occupancy evaluation done, and it showed that improved productivity by the staff, which was very truly attributed to the improved air quality and access to natural light, had mm-hmm. an estimated increase of over $5 million in annual value. So, yeah, wow. $5 million yeah. in annual value. So, yeah. um, and a great majority of the staff commented on their enhanced well-being and higher productivity based on their, their new office space. Um, yeah. So, therefore, the, the, what was seen is the green cost premium from that project had a less than five-year payback due to the increased productivity of, of the employees. It's really, wow. really great outcome. Yeah, that's significant, sure. 
And then the, the second project I'll just share quickly. Um, so we had, a, we had a conscious focus on health and well-being to really nudge good decision-making. Um, mm-hmm. So we completed the Brown School of Social Work at Washington University in St. Louis. And some of the great strategies we used there is, you know, really encouraging use of the staircase. So we created a beautiful staircase with natural materials and views of outdoors. And we also created a really wide variety of spaces, some much more social, maybe more like a, you know, cafe-type vibe, vibrant and loud, and then all the way down to really contemplative, quiet work. Mm-hmm. Um, there was artwork throughout the project, healthy eating options. We also had outdoor spaces um, so that teachers and classes could do some outdoor learning. And the post-occupancy evaluation that we did there showed a 24% increase in physical activity, um, a 19% increase in enhanced work with others, and a 48% increase in social connections. So the human-centered design approach that we had there resulted in higher workplace and building satisfaction and also increased individual effectiveness, which was right. extremely valuable for our clients. Yeah, yeah, and I, that's so cool that you guys can, you know, point to measurable data that demonstrates the impact that the design has on occupants because then it helps sell that to to other clients and really making that broader impact overall. So, exactly. yeah, that's awesome. Exactly. Um, so let's, like, maybe talk about the buildings themselves, like what goes into them. Like, what do you guys see as being some of the key components that make up a healthy building? You mentioned a couple of things, active design. Uh, what about, like, materials and furnishings and other design elements? Like, how do they all play into that? What really goes into a healthy building? Yeah, I think it's a great question and something that we've learned from working on a living building challenge project in Santa Monica is, I think it really boils down to three takeaways. The first thing being keep things simple. You know, simple products not only allow for flexibility in design, but they also, you know, allow for great things like free address and spaces, adaptability, longer product lifespans. And all of this also avoids, you know, complicated chemical inventories. The more complicated a product is, you know, whether it's having an extra sealant, an extra coat of paint, different types of adhesives, composites, coatings, insulation, on and on, right? I just allows mm-hmm. some more room for supply chain abuses and potentially hazardous chemicals like flame retardants and formaldehyde. So keeping right. things simple means that, you know, we don't have to track as much and we can count on people making the right choices, right? So I think that's that's the first thing. It's a really easy thing. And again, like you were saying about biophilic design, you know, we hear this word thrown around a lot, but that connection to nature, if you take it seriously, I think can lead to spaces that, not only inspire us and connect, you know, us to the organic world around us, but that mm-hmm. can also, to Heidi's point, leads to these increased connections. So just thinking about, you know, the warmth of natural wood finishes, habitat, restoration gardens, interiors inspired by natural patterns, all this ways to people congregating together, making those chance connections that we love to talk about in education spaces or office spaces. And that starts to combat the loneliness that I think we see in society more and more and also reduce mm-hmm. burnout. Um, you know, when people have to work these 50-hour weeks, I think thinking about those things that we might not typically think about biophilic design, they do have impact. So mm-hmm. that's, you know, one of those design philosophies that we can adapt and in terms of product specifications, I think there's just been this huge movement to going towards uh, bio-based products or naturally made products, you know, whether it's organic or inorganic. Not only does that lead to better air quality outcomes for building and users, the manufacturing.
trade workers, frontline communities, but it also reduces our demand for petrochemicals, right? And that's mm-hmm. the driving force behind oil and gas production and greenhouse gases. So it's also a win for, you know, combating climate change. So it's just been so exciting to see, you know, more bio-based materials like insulation in our markets. I think it's, it's really changed in the past five years, and it's a great way that we can show innovation has these great impacts, right? Right, yeah, absolutely, and I'm and I'm glad you brought up products. And you mentioned something early on, one of your first points about keeping it simple. In the early, earlier part of my introduction, as I was talking about, there's there is a lot of information on the market as far as different certification programs and different acronyms that designers are expected to be really well versed in or certified in. That can be you know, a bit intimidating for those that are you know uninitiated. Can you guys talk about things like health product declarations or like the red list and declare labels and some of those other tools that are really relevant to design wellness? How do you keep it simple when there's so much information out there? Yeah, I mean, and when we started that loading challenge project about five years ago, there was just, just wasn't much out there. So it's, it's, it's really come a long way in the past few years. And one of our favorite tools is Mindful Materials. Uh, it's a really great materials research uh, platform that's user-friendly, accessible. It's not just like a giant Excel sheet that you can't, you know, filter uh, and it's mm-hmm. got an enormous amount of products on it, everything from architectural finishes to even the stuff that we typically forget, like the MEP side of things. So I'd recommend, like, you know, starting with a product like that, whether it's flooring, a finish, or an installation product, and you can take a look at, see if we double-check to make sure this is all third-party verified, because, you, you know, you want this to be scientifically rigorous. And you can check to see if there's, you know, a declare label or an HPD. These really are the... The gold, the gold standard for um, you know, detailing the list of ingredients. And I think when you take a, a product and, and you kind of look across a couple of manufacturers, you start to see some trends, right? You start to see that insulation tends to have halogenated flame retardants, resilient flooring tends to have PVC, composite wood uh, tends to have formaldehyde. And all of these mm-hmm. are red list chemicals or chemical classes that science has shown time and time again that these have negative impacts on our human health. I mean, if this isn't recent research, this is, you know, tested throughout the 20th century, and we're getting to get this out of our, our buildings. Um, but you can start to see patterns emerge, and you can start comparing your favorite product or manufacturer's product that you really love, and you're, you, know, you do a little bit of research and realize, man, you know, this, this great insulation that makes my building really efficient has a lot of formaldehyde. That's the final step, I think, is starting to advocate uh, manufacturers that you want to keep using their product, and you only can if it's not going to have, you know, an impact on human health. Right. Yeah, it's really encouraging to, to see that trend moving in that direction. Um, Heidi, did you want to weigh in at all on the materiality aspect of it? You know, I was actually just going to talk a little bit more about our role as um, designers and engineers and specifiers and okay. really think about not only the building users, um, but as Kathleen touched on, right, um, the communities where these materials are being extracted from, the mm-hmm. communities that are being impacted by the manufacture of these materials and these cancer alleys um, that are being created and just kind of horrible living conditions for, yeah. for the adjacent neighborhoods. Um, and then also, too, just at the end of life and um, Kathleen's is a firefighter, so it's very personal for her because when you look at the research, you know, firefighters have much higher rates of cancer than the average mm-hmm. American um, because they're fighting these fires in buildings where we're specifying really toxic materials. So right. she's done some incredible research of really just looking at the full life cycle 
um, and and our role as as specifiers of these products in in advocacy and in, in inquiry and um, as you mentioned all of those tools that are out there we have come a long way in the last couple of years and transparency is is just such a key next step. Mm. Yeah, and that's great. And that's a great segue into the last thing that I wanted to ask you guys about was next steps and where do you see the wellness trend heading as far as design goes or or what is it that you're really excited about as it relates to healthy buildings? Yeah, I think a lot of it is just is about our approach um, and approaching every project that we're working on uh, and making sure that we're designing buildings that support occupants being fulfilled and happy, right? Um, our buildings mm-hmm. are for people, ultimately, um, and a huge success for it would be for us to leave our buildings where we live or where we work or study, you know, feeling rejuvenated uh, and not depleted. So, and I think another key to that is really early collaboration between the entire team and really detailed monitoring and analysis is, is also hugely important. So that post-occupancy evaluation piece is is so crucial to our learning from our designs and, the, and having that feedback loop so we continue to um, improve the, the existing buildings, but also to learn from our projects and do even better next time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so yeah, so I advocate, advocate for, you know, an early and holistic health and well-being approach um, really focused on, on occupant health and, and well-being, really understanding the importance of, of the users and, and moving beyond first cost and really looking at the triple bottom line approach to every project. And so often there's a project budget and there's all this value engineering that happens and there's often key things to the project that are on the chopping block and there's just so much pressure on getting the, the first costs down. But there's some great tools out there that you can teams can use, such as AutoCase, and that looks at the triple bottom line. So it just really shows you, you can put in different scenarios and then see what the, the human impacts over the lifespan of the project are. So there's some great great progress there. And I think just coming up with new and creative solutions, and when you pair that with the post-occupancy evaluation for that proof of concept and that continued learning, it's, it's a great outcome, and that will ultimately positively impact our, our the designs and, and the outcomes for the occupants. Yeah, absolutely. Kathleen, do you want to um, just talk a little bit about where you see the wellness trend going or what you're excited about as well? Yeah, I think there's, there's, there's two things just to kind of end on. And I think the first is as a, as a mechanical engineer by trade, I think that really embracing the idea of preventative health, whether that's making sure that for all of our projects going forward, we're putting in advanced water filtration on our products. And, you know, we have defining water quality all over uh, the country. And the similar, uh, similarity with air quality, there was this amazing uh, research paper that just came out of Southern California in the past month that was looking at um, installing air quality filters, both HEPA filters and activated carbon filters for VOCs um, on the impact of student test scores. And it's the cheap thing to do. It's only about, you know, I think $1,000 upfront cost, including maintenance for these schools. And they saw increase in test scores for students that are equivalent to having you know, the small class sizes that we see in private schools. So I think, you know, starting to look at our design processes from a mechanical and an architectural point of view that say, what do we need to include as the baseline for human health? And to Heidi's, you know, excellent point, I think keeping an eye on current events as they relate to environmental justice organizations is something that 
is really led uh, to improvement in our internal processes and how we think about uh, design impacts, you know, whether it's the Louisiana Bucket Brigade fighting, you know, a, a new giant plastic facility in Louisiana, the recent uh, petrochemical explosion around Houston, um, or even, you know, citizens of Jefferson County in West Virginia fighting against stricter regulations for insulation manufacturer facilities, realizing that the design choices that we make, you know, in California or in New York or Florida can have impact on people all over the country and, frankly, all over the world. That's a huge thing to start to think about, thinking about the impact on frontline communities, particularly communities that are low-income, communities of color. We have to have to come to the realization that, you know, the design field has an equity issue and we need to open our eyes to that and see the true impact we have. So mm-hmm. hopefully, and I think that's where the industry is going. We're starting to realize, you know, from a life cycle um, point of view that it's more than just a building and user health. It's, it's really, we, we need to bring everyone in. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, that's a great point, and, and I agree. It's definitely an exciting time for design, and, and I think now more than ever, we have an opportunity to really make significant impact on healthier buildings and the people that are in them as, as well. Well, that's all the time we have for for now. Uh, Kathleen and Heidi, it was great having you both on, and thank you so much again for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. Well, for our listeners out there, thank you as well for tuning in. I hope you guys will join us again next time as we wrap up our series on wellness by talking about human-centric lighting and the role that lighting design plays on human health specifically. And I think it'll be a great conversation that you don't want to miss. Thanks and be well, everyone. 